0: Ghost towns and weird stories. This is your host, Nathan, and on today's episode, we're sitting down with Joseph Puzo, owner and founder of Olive Branch Furniture, to discuss his road to becoming a professional craftsman and the history of the Mark Twain National Forest. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but when I think of woodworking, my mind goes to shows that I would see on PBS when I was a yes. kid of these older guys. There are New England wood shop making very prototypical pieces, but your style is very different from that. Yeah. So could you go into a little more detail about describing your style and who's been your influences on how you make your pieces the way that you do?
1: Yeah. So there was a big rush of influence, especially starting – it really started heating up in 2017 for uh, George Nakashima. So he's an, he's he's long past, but he would take slabs of wood and he would um, make these – fantastic pieces of furniture out of him Mm -hmm. and just he's one of the world's i mean world's most he's the world's most famous furniture maker if you're a furniture maker you know nakashima and so that's where my initial like inspiration came from was from him and just i was like oh yeah i wanted to everybody wanted to do that everybody wants to make stuff like him Mm -hmm. you start from a place like that and then slowly build your own thing so yeah i took that and then now i'm in a spot where the furniture that i build highlights the species that that i'm building out of okay so i don't just want something that's like oh and dark wood like i get that but have you heard about spalted hackberry have you heard about sycamore do you know what sycamore looks like 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 these there's so many different species like out there there's um oh sapili Cipeli. sapili is just this beautiful red you know piece of wood that is, I've, I've never heard of that before yeah, yeah, yeah like, all oh, of them. redwood yeah. <laughs> yeah all of them it's just it's fantastic sorry <laughs> um, and then like, do you know, like, you know, with cherry, very, very rarely in cherry species, there will be this, everybody thinks cherry might be red, but it's usually just like a pink issue. Yeah. But very rarely in cherry, there will be this fire red cut. It's hard to find. It's really hard to find. And I developed a really good relationship with some woodworkers mm-hmm. or sorry, with some sawmills where they would call me if they ever found it. And I would buy all of it, just buy all of it. It was just beautiful, beautiful red. But I want to highlight the grain. I want to highlight what they're doing, and not just in a really lazy way where I take a slab and I sand it and I finish it, because the slab will warp. Everybody thinks that these beautiful slab pieces will just stay like that forever. No, they're going to warp and they're going to buckle and you're going to be embarrassed, and that's your woodwork. You need to be really careful about building stuff like that. And that was my mentor. That was what he told me. He's like, dude, you got to be careful. You can't just build slab furniture you can't just slap a slab on top of something and then expect it to never warp it's going to warp and you're going to be it's, it's embarrassing you don't want your furniture to break you don't want your like what's worse what's worse than a late delivery is something that cracks or, yeah. or breaks or creaks you know that's and so you need to be careful about that and so i will build slab stuff i built a ton of slab stuff that's how i started it i'm not knocking it i'm just saying mm-hmm. just be really careful And and so now my inspiration comes from I want solid joinery. I want solid um, construction. I want to be able to dance on top of it, which is weird to say, but I do. And Mm -hmm. then I want the grain, the wood, whether it's slab pieces, whether it's slats of lumber, I want that grain to be highlighted. So that's my main inspiration. I I want wood to also complement each other. So I really like using different species of wood. Mm Mm-hmm. And using those to complement each other, so I built a pulpit for my church. I was very blessed to do that, and I did an organization that was like Wenge, Birdseye Maple, Purple Heart, Birdseye Maple, and Wenge. So cool. dark brown, white, purple, white, dark brown in a three layer pattern. and I did it, it looks fantastic. Yeah, so it complements each other really
0: well. Okay, so we've grown up in the era of fast furniture, IKEA is notorious for it, every big box store. Well, will sell you an entire house's worth of furniture that's made out of glue and sawdust and it's mm. going to fall apart after mm. two moves. Breach. There's furniture out in Oregon that got there off the back of a wagon. Yeah. And if I move something across town that I buy at a big box store, it is done. Exactly. So are you seeing a shift in what people are wanting in their homes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I am. I'm seeing a lot more people want that higher quality thing and a lot more people are coming with the expectation of knowing like I can go to a big-box store and I can buy this really cheap crappy thing and I can set like we bought we had an Ikea bookshelf when we first got married and it that thing like fell apart like the back of it never stayed on tight mm. and it's just frustrating like I paid money for this I worked really really hard for this um, and now it's falling apart it's not gonna hold up my books and should it fall over like my books would fall out my stuff on it would break and someone might get hurt and so a lot of people are like seeing that and they're wanting to buy more stuff now obviously people that are just getting started in life like we can't afford that mm-hmm. um, college kids freshly married kids or freshly married people but as as they get older they get really frustrated with crappy um, crappy cabinets, crappy drawers, crappy tables. I mean, you have this real big gigantic table that's just junk. Those legs are going to break out from under it. And it's embarrassing. Like I knew a dude, they had a table and a leaf in it and it was just bowed. It was just like a U shape. It was so so terrible. And they're like, can you fix this? And I was like, for the price it would cost me to fix it, just make me build you
0: a new one. So it's not even a... Asking for something that's like luxurious or innate—it's no. asking for something that's functional. It's
1: Quality—it's—it's it's, it's a frustration with like with the microwave culture that we mm-hmm. had had for a while. So yeah, I think absolutely there is.
0: Now I unfortunately had to put my house together with some big box furniture. and I was exactly. getting really frustrated. We all did. Yeah, I'm not yeah, dogging
1: you for it, I, I've done the same.
0: Yeah, and so I was getting really frustrated with it. And that made me think about either trying to build something of my own. And I just remember when I was back in college, when I initially tried getting into woodworking, I saw someone carve a spoon out of an old piece of barn wood. It looked mm. really cool. Mm-hmm. So I bought some carving stuff from Harbor Freight and I tried carving out a spoon some scrap two-by-eight that was in the basement. To be honest, it didn't go well. I got really hot. I got really sweaty. I almost stabbed myself twice, yeah. and it looked awful. I made a couple gashes into the wood, and that was about it. So what advice do you have to give to someone that is interested in getting into woodworking, woodworking in but particular? isn't sure how to start? Yeah. So
1: we live in a phenomenal time in history. We live where – so if you think about, like, the 20s and 30s and stuff, there's fantastic carpentry. But travel around to any of these Missouri barns that you and I talked about. Mm -hmm. They're like, some of the carpentry in there is just garbage and amazing how it held up. They didn't have, some people had the resources to know how to put together beautiful things. A lot of people didn't. We have the resources now to be able to build anything and everything you want and get really, really good at it. And so my advice, my advice to any woodworker who wants to be one, number one, Save up a thousand dollars. I know that is a lot of money for anybody, but save up a thousand dollars. And while you're saving that up, go to YouTube University, like mm-hmm. just watch the junk out of all of it. Watch about species, watch about land management, watch about woodworking, routers, everything you need to do while you're saving up that thousand dollars. When you get that thousand dollars saved, you can buy don't get don't get tool envy right this is what every woodworker struggles with yeah but with a thousand dollars i'm going to give you a list of stuff that you need to buy number one go Mm. to a pawn shop
0: (laughs) i never i never would have thought of that it's probably
1: stolen but go to a pawn shop and get a miter saw you can get one i got my miter saw still works to this day i bought it five years ago wow 50 bucks get a miter saw there's they're there get go to lows and get a impact and a drill. so impact drill and a regular drill. that's like 250. okay so right now we're right at $350 dollars. Mm-hmm. Next you'll need a table saw. You can get a real a sturdy one, not the biggest one in the world. You need a sturdy one for like four or five hundred dollars. And with the extra 150, get yourself a sander. And go to town so with that thousand dollars you can build a shop that you can build a tons of stuff if you save another thousand dollars you can go router portable planer and a joiner get those three things next so miner saw drills table saw sander those are your first four planer joiner router those are your next three so with those seven tools so that's two grand invested you can build darn near anything I bought just dumb stuff and I'm like what a waste ignore (laughs) all that those those first seven things don't buy anything else (laughs) I use those seven things 95% of my time everything else the 5% is tiny tidbit stuff but those seven things Mm -hmm. that's it cool so while you're saving up that first thousand dollars and you get it when you get all those tools start building stuff Bring yourself, start building, you're going to burn a lot of it. Like a lot of my furniture, I got so pissed at cause it was so ugly. I was just like, I'm going to burn it. I hate it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just, you know, it's just frustration, but you're going to learn, you need to learn how to do that. If, and this comes into my next piece of advice, if you could get instantly good at something, it wouldn't be worth it. So think about that. That's like, a, yeah, that's a really good point. You look at, I mean, look at a, I mean, you, well, let's talk about being a doctor. If if being a doctor was – if you could get it done overnight, it would be not as respected. Why is being a doctor so respected? Because you know that he spent years studying and studying and studying and and, and stressing and thinking, if I screw this up, I'm going to kill somebody. She's taking that with her into – the the patient room into the care into mm-hmm. the recommendation that I mean, she's thinking he's thinking man i screw this up like it's freaking curtains for this person that's why it's worth it you look at a blacksmith knife you look at a think about a knife right it's got damascus steel it's beautiful is it worth it is it worth it when
0: if you could someone <laughs> could just stamp that out yeah or, I, I mean no that's so true though um exactly just because of the amount of time and and effort and and knowledge and wisdom that you'd get from it yeah so stick to it and just having that confidence in yourself when you are able to achieve things that you didn't think you were able to earlier precisely so my wife (coughs) beautiful
1: wonderful personality um, when I first started dating her she said the reason why that she was interested in me because I was the only dude that would consistently pursue her. She is like a solid 10, perfect 10. And there are these jokers out there that didn't take the time to be like, Oh yeah, maybe I should ask her out on a second date. Or maybe I should be intentional about how I'm going to pursue her. And because I was just like, Oh no, this is, this is her. I got her. I got this woman who loves my daughter and makes my house a home and you know what i mean like yeah but it was because i stuck to it because i was like this is her this is it this is what i want yeah. you stick to woodworking this is what i want and and if you and this is another thing people are like all oh, right i've been doing this for a few years and i'm you know i've been doing it, i hate it but i'm gonna stick to it and it's like no it's okay if you i thought i wanted to do a desk job I don't wanna, it's terrible i hated it if you put in a couple years and decide you hate it freaking switch yeah if you start woodworking for a couple of years and you're like wow this is garbage then switch it's okay but when you find that when you if you do something and you and you and you're good at it and you love it and you have a passion for it then keep doing it keep doing it. you're gonna get so much better hmm so much better and that's that's like that's the advice so first of all save that thousand dollars build a bunch of furniture get over that hump of like it's it's not going to be perfect it's going to wobble you're going to feel like you're embarrassed but the fact that you put your hands to a piece of wood and built this creation is a phenomenal thing
0: yeah it's very much a, a growth thing
1: yes and keep doing it stick to it get after it like it's so easy to build on that and build on it and build it and easy by when i say easy i mean simple like just keep getting out in the garage. Keep getting. Things. I can't tell you the amount of times I'd come in at 1 a.m. when it was freezing cold mm-hmm. because I was like, I gotta get this done. Like I wanted. I want to do it. I want to become a better woodworker. um And you just stick to it. And because of that, you learn all these lessons. And then also, like the third piece of advice, find a bunch of people that are that are good at it too. Like you'll you'll find people when you're in the shops buying supplies. When you're in the shops buying tools or wood or whatever you're gonna find someone that Mm -hmm. that you can talk with Um, one of my best friends Mike costity at nova woodworks and leather um great 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 friend of mine he's a wonderful woodworker he far exceeds me in every way i learned so much from him he's a he's excellent the way that he builds the way that he does things he's got an attention to detail it's fantastic um hard worker he's i mean but he's the type of dude that I want to surround myself with yeah when I get woodworking advice I'm not going to go to some dude that doesn't know anything I'm going to go to him and I'm going to be like what do you think about this and he's going to say man I I like I like that but let me show you this joinery let me show you how I do this what about the end grain and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. he comes to me for wood identification that was that's like my strong suit but um surround yourself with people that that are in that niche Mm -hmm. and it comes back to YouTube and stuff like that you'll
0: find people you'll find a community you just got to look Yeah, I mean, that is a really good point. You want to find people that are enthusiastic about what you're enthusiastic about. absolutely. And people that can not only make you better, but you can make them better as well. Exactly, yeah.
1: And then, yeah, so what I'm doing now, um, I'm doing woodworking. I've got a few orders backed up. Um, My wife and I just bought that land, Mm -hmm. and we're going to farm it. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to rejuvenate the land. We're going to do some— Regenerative uh, agriculture in it. We're just gonna grow uh, veggies and and do um, some livestock. We're gonna call it chicory farms. So by the time this is up, we'll have a website. But cool. And then also I have coffee. So it's weird. That's the story <laughs> in and of itself. But we'll we'll have you on for another episode s- of this. <laughs> Somehow I got involved in coffee, and it it that's a weird story. But I got. I've got, I'm running coffee too. So it's just all of ranch coffee. So I'm doing coffee. I got a farm, a furniture business. That's the thing about being an entrepreneur though. Like there's so many fun things to do. Yeah. I want to do all of it. Yeah. You know what (laughs) I mean? There's so many jobs that I want to do. So, but um, those are the three that, that I love doing and, and stuff like that. So
0: that's it. Farm, coffee, furniture yeah man, thank you for talking so much about your adventure into entrepreneurship and jumping in with both feet and just the the hustle and the ability to man, I don't know I, i'm I'm just so amazed because like I you know I've traveled around a bit and you know we we haven't always lived close to each other but and so you know I'd kind of see bits and pieces of what you were doing, mm-hmm. but it's just so cool to hear you know that whole story. You're a big wood guy, yes, obviously you know more about trees than I do. the question I've got for you is do you like trees love them love them I love you and I didn't get to say this either
1: but if I can use a tree that was downed because it had either died or because it was being cleared for a field I will do that I will pick that tree a thousand times over
0: all right well Um, On this case, uh, I think you're going to like this story. So we're going to talk about how Missouri got the Mark Twain National Forest.
1: Yes. Don't know this
0: story, but I am excited. I love Mark Twain. It is wild. Yeah. So uh, Mark Twain today, as we know it, covers over 3 million acres, spread over 29 counties. Uh, The vast majority of this is in the Ozark Highlands where we grew up. Mm -hmm. It contains 11% of all forested land in Missouri. So it's actually home to the largest spring on national forest land, which is Greer Spring. And out of the 765 wilderness areas that the Forest Service manages, Mark Twain has seven of them. Wow. So they're the Irish Wilderness, Rockpile Mountain, Bell Mountain, Paddy Creek, Piney Creek, Hercules Glade, and my personal favorite, the Devil's Backbone. Yes. we hiking the devil, there. Love the Devil's Backbone. <laughs>
1: love the Devil's man. Backbone. Got lost there with... Um... With Josiah and Chen. I heard about that. Did they that. tell that? And I, yeah. And there's, I, God, there's this tiny, tiny turn right. I'm not trying to, to delay. I know we got to go, but there's a tiny turn right. And we missed it. And we walked for hours in the night. And eventually we got to a sign that said private property. And so we turned around, dude.
0: So it, that's that's the thing. Um, by design, those wilderness areas are remote and not clearly marked. Yeah. I didn't realize they were supposed to be that difficult to navigate either until I started kind of putting things together. And if you read the reviews of these places online, other people didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> so i um, just kind of going through, like, the different Yelp reviews. A lot of people were complaining about bugs, ticks, poorly marked trails. Like, guys, it's, uh, yeah. it's nature. It's part of that, it. it. That's where the ticks live. Don't yeah. get mad if you stomp in their home. Uh, the Devil's Backbone actually got a five-star review. Uh, one guy gave it a five-star review that he'd never been there before, but he said he was really excited to go. <laughs> Uh, Piney Creek, unfortunately, took last place with 4.4 out of 5 stars. A lot of people are getting lost, and they weren't too happy about it. And so, you know, we love the National Forest, but it's really hard to talk about the National Forest without the National Forest Service. Um, but I'm going to try to tease them out from each other for the sake of the story. Okay. So the United States Forest Service is an agency underneath the Department of Agriculture. Another it's the only. Job. It's the only major national land agency that's not underneath the Department of the Interior. And they're actually responsible for overseeing about 25% of all federal lands. Mm. There's roughly 35,000 people that work for the Forest Service. There's 541 of them that work at the headquarters in Washington, D.C. The remaining work in regional and field offices. So there's nine regions in the Forest Service. They're numbered 1 through 10. Okay. Region 7 got eliminated in 1965 due to some administrative redistricting and not like a Hunger Games type scenario unfortunately that, <laughs> there's that, a conspiracy there. I know that <laughs> uh, that, that did make me wonder. It was like, is that where the premise of the hunger games right. came from? Is the forest service just 100%. revolting against itself? As someone
1: who's done zero research and knows nothing. Yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> you know, the hunger games has districts and a lot of woods. Just saying. Yeah. What are the odds? Yeah. Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> so Mark, Mark Twain is seven. in region nine. It's also called the Eastern region. Um, uh, the region headquarters are in Milwaukee. Uh, the Mark Twain headquarters are located in Rolla, and you've got six ranger districts that oversee nine tracts of land. Most of, how, many, how many acres is that, that? those Over three million. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, most of the work gets done at the ranger district level, where the staff will do trail construction, maintenance, campground operation. They oversee special use permits. They manage wildlife and vegetation habitats. They also happen to have their own law enforcement division. And these guys have access to cool things like horses, snowmobiles, dirt bikes at their disposal to protect natural resources, Forest Service employees, and visitors. Okay. And, you know, this wasn't mentioned on their website, but all Forest Service employees also bake cookies in their tree houses to raise money towards their annual operating budget. And 90% of them are under 24 inches tall. (laughs) (laughs) So the Keebler elves are. There are the, the, big Glock guys. If you look at a box a of Keebler cookies and there's a bulge, it is a Glock. <laughs> Prior to uh, pre-conservation legislation, you know, back in the 1800s, America did this thing where we bought a lot of land. Um, some might say it's a purchase. And the government was itching to put it to use. And it chose a policy that encouraged people to settle and domesticate the landscape. So prior to establishing the federal income tax in 1913, the the federal government actually received a large portion of their operating budget from selling this land, and during the 1800s, half of the nation was sold off to states, corporations, and private individuals. Wow. We were relying on seemingly limitless resources to expand, uh, logging you know these vast forests that gave people jobs, cheap lumber to build cities, towns, and railroads. You had these centers of commerce that are now being tied together with each piece of native lumber laid underneath the steel rails. Right. So in 1862, the Transcontinental Railroad and Homestead Act made the transfer of land and natural resources out of the public domain to settlers and railroad companies possible. Under this law, Lincoln signed, uh, he said that citizens and even future citizens uh, were given 160 acres of public land provided they live on it, promise to improve it, and pay a small fee. Yeah. And so like all government programs, uh, the grift was hard at work. Millions of acres were actually sold underneath fraudulent circumstances. Of course. Uh, Later acts like the Timber Culture Act of 1873, where anyone could get 160 acres of land, providing they were willing to plant 40 acres of trees, were well-intentioned. But there are numerous loopholes that allowed non-residents to claim the land for speculation purposes. And your family member could just give their land to you. And this way, formal ownership could be circumvented, and you wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. Mm. So, later acts, because we're just doing the greatest hits here of agricultural land policy in the yes. 1800s, we have a very heavy uh, agricultural lawyer fan base, even though we've only been around for half of an episode. Uh, <laughs> acts like the Desert Land Act of 1877 gave 640 acres of land at a dollar twenty-five an acre anyone who pinky swore if they would irrigate it and within three years and so that resulted in ranchers timber and mining companies and land speculators to sweep up large chunks of land and we're talking like up to a million acres at the time that's awesome i'm just coming in and saying yeah we'll, so we'll take it
1: just just rampant rampant just that's mine give ah, me. Just, give it's, me. Just, it's like <laughs> it's like a child in a room full of candy and they're just it really was it as much as they can.
0: and so trying to figure out why lincoln did that uh we were kind of like having a small war at the time you might have heard of yeah so he um, was yeah it's, tabasco was made around that time right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um a1 steak sauce too so when <laughs> lincoln wasn't working on a1 steak sauce and tabasco he was also saying hey we really need to develop the west because just in case this little conflict in Maine goes bad yes. we want to have that developed so they don't get that so land fraud was easily achievable by wealthy individuals and corporations, while the little guy that just wanted to determine his own destiny on his little piece of heaven by the sweat of his brow and honest work got left out. So by the end of the 1800s, it became obvious that our national resources did indeed have a limit. Two-thirds of our timberland had been chopped down. The unrestricted logging and the fires that frequently followed it resulted in erosion of the topsoil. Streams and rivers were flooded with sediment. Waterways became extremely difficult to navigate, and excessive runoff increased the likelihood of severe flooding. Habitat loss led to the disappearance of many species in the area that were once common.
1: Yep. We're in a good...
0: Yep. Yeah, we're doing great. We're doing great. So this leads to America's first forest agent. In 1876, Congress authorized the appointment of America's first forest agent, forestry agent, Dr. Franklin B. Howe, physician, statistician, and naturalist. Nice. Which is a different triple threat doctor from what we're used to hearing <laughs> so working underneath the department of agriculture he conducted a study on the supply and demand for forest products ways to manage and preserve forests and the influence of forests on the climate which i thought was interesting because you know when i think of 1870s climate change is not really right, what i think of climate change like, studying yeah he was way ahead of the game there maybe these carbon traps do something yeah So he finished his report the next year, and he was extremely critical of uh, the current environmental policies of the day. He condemned the wasteful attitude towards America's natural forests and the unchecked greed of timber companies. He advocated for a new kind of forest management, the reexamining of property rights, and most importantly, for the federal government to set aside forested lands as reserves. So in 1881, the Division of Forestry was created within the Department of Agriculture with Dr. Howe as his head. The thing was, there wasn't anything for it to manage yet, so its purpose was largely as a fact finder for questions about forests and forest policy. And in 1898, the Division of Forests finally got some forests to be in charge of. And in 1905, the Forest Service as we know it was established. Okay. So that's how we get the U.S. Forest Service. One man. One man. (laughs) Determined. On his own. (laughs) So, I mean, it's kind of cool, though. I have no idea how they picked him, but... It seemed like he did a really good job. Like. so,
1: <laughs> this is funny. Like he's right place, right time, right right voice. Just yeah, talking out. So, I have to go to the bathroom real quick. Okay. Pause it.
0: Yeah. So uh, we are gonna take a break and we will come back right after these ads. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by us, the Trout Rapper. For all your poorly planned adventures, we're there to help you do it in style. From hats, shirts, and more, we quite literally have you covered. Go to TroutRapper.com today. And now, back to the show. And we're back, so... Short potty break. Short potty break.
1: Am I still on? You hear me? Is this me down here?
0: Yeah, that's you down there. am so small. Okay. We've- We forgot everything. That's okay. (laughs) All right. Where were we? So we just wrapped up on how the U.S. Forest Service was established. One man. One man. Dr. Howe. Yep. Against the odds. Made a very forward-thinking proposal, I guess, for someone in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. So good job, Dr. Howe. So now all of this fraud and environmental exploitation was not going unnoticed by the public and lawmakers. In 1891, the General Revision Act, or it's also called the Land Revision Act, or the Forest Reserve Act, or the, wow, we really fucked that one up act,
1: as I like to say,
0: <laughs> was passed in order to give America's forests and watersheds protection from exploitation. So Dr. Howe's successor at the Chief of the Division of Forestry was Bernard Fernow, and he played an influential role in adding a writer to that act that gave the president the authority to set aside public land form reserves. So I'm going to read that to you. So the passage states that the President of the United States may, from time to time, set apart and reserve. Wait,
1: sorry. Who was the President at this time? Is
0: Uh, is still Lincoln? It is Benjamin Harrison. Okay. So, that the President of the United States may, from time to time, set apart and reserve in any state or territory having public land bearing forests, in any part of the public lands, wholly or in part covered with timber or undergrowth, whether of commercial value or not, as public reservations. And the president shall, by public proclamation, declare the establishment of such reservations and the limits thereof. So that's just really complicated legal speak for saying, hey, the president gets to declare the section of forest that they own to be preserved and set aside. Okay. Now, this was added last minute by a House-Senate joint committee. And it didn't get kicked back to the committees uh, in either chamber that usually handle that Mm -hmm. uh, before it got voted on. So no one knew about it before it was actually read for a vote. (laughs) Some people got upset about it. There were some complaints about executive overreach, but it wound up passing. And Benjamin Harrison was the president at this time, and he wasted no time utilizing this new law. So less than a month after it uh, became law, he established the Yellowstone Forest Reserve as a protective boundary around Yellowstone National Park. And before his term ended two years later, he created 15 forest reserves covering over 13 million acres. Wow. Yeah, he got to work quick. Um, his successor, uh, Grover Cleveland, who has the best first name, I think, out of all presidents. I think just Grover. <laughs> Side note.
1: The, if, so have you heard some of the conspiracy theories about, like, national parks? No. Dude, they're wild. <laughs> they i don't know any of have this. You, oh dude okay i don't want to get i don't have you heard about um missing 411 no oh my gosh okay i don't want to go deep but <laughs> there's this group of people who have and it's tragic but there's this group of people hundreds of people who have gone missing in order to get on this list you have to have these criteria you have to go missing like in the afternoon and i'm gonna miss say something but it's something weird like you have to go missing in the afternoon you have to be with a group of people you have to be in a national park and you have to be around a rock glade or a swamp and there's hundreds of people that have met those four criteria that's really interesting there's so many people that they have like conventions about it i'm not joking like that's so bizarre and so and so of course conspiracy theories sprout up like coffee shops and there's conspiracy theory that you know grover started the national park service or whoever started whoever you just said started it because they knew that there were like monsters or whatever in there and they're like we just got to (laughs) protect this area but when you hear someone actually give like the real story about how they formed it helps you be like no it was actually because we were, like, losing everything, and someone was like, yeah, maybe we should
0: save this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's bec- it's because, like, it got to the point where it was a matter of national security <laughs> if we didn't actually do something. So it wasn't just tree huggers. It's like, oh, cool. So it's just going to flood horrendously every now and we're yes. all going to starve to death. Exactly. So that's a problem. Yes, the
1: wind <laughs> a wind gust will take a piece of dust from the desert in California to
0: New York. If we don't start saying yeah. <laughs> not a daggum tree to stop it. Nope. It's just big old Kansas. Right. <laughs> so anyways, uh, <laughs> so Grover Cleveland, besides from having a, a great first name, he's probably one of my favorite people this episode. So he set aside 25 million acres as forest reserves, and 21 million of those acres were set aside on one day, two weeks before the end of his term. Wow. Yeah. Talk about going out. (laughs) It gets better. So most of this land was in Western states, and people living out there didn't take too kindly to that. So the Seattle Chamber of Commerce said, quote, King George had never attempted so high-handed an (laughs) evasion upon the rights, end quote, of American citizens. Now, there were presidents on both sides of the political aisle that were establishing national forests, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of through this era. them after themselves, stuff like that. You know, surprisingly, not from what I can tell. Um, you know, there are weird. like if I'm
1: gonna if I'm gonna take twenty five million, I'm gonna be like I'm gonna slap my last name on it.
0: So <laughs> we're actually gonna get into how Mark Twain got its name later, and uh, as a teaser, it is very stupid and very petty, and it is probably some of the best thing I've read in I a can't long wait. time. I can't love stories like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, back to President Grover Cleveland. People in the Western states aren't happy with them. The Republican controlled Congress tried to make President Cleveland choose either between funding the federal government or preserving his forest reserves. So what's this guy do? He can either fund the government and keep everything running, or he can save his trees. Save the trees. So he shut down the government to save the forest My man. by pocket vetoing the funding bill on his last day in office. He just Driving sat around He just sat around and was like, nope. And then <laughs> just he, goes, the, just peace he goes, I don't have a
1: job tomorrow and neither will you deuces.
0: So it's, it's pretty rad, though, because no one tried to mess with this stuff after he got out of office. No one tried to, like, fight awesome. whether or not the president could do this afterwards. <laughs> oh. So that right kind of stayed in place. And, you know, although like millions of acres were set aside, no one really had any idea what to do with them because the Forest Reserve Act didn't really give a purpose for these areas. Uh, they weren't being actively managed, even setting foot inside these like national forests was considered illegal at yes. the time, but there also wasn't any funding to do anything about it. So they're just like, hey, these are now some entity that in practice don't right. look that much different than anything else. And so, you know, I'm not a big fan of not being allowed to go places, especially, you know, within my own country. Um, people out west didn't like being told that either, so eventually legislation got ironed out where people could actually like go out and spend time you know, in, mm-hmm. in these national forests. So, um, like I alluded to earlier, between 1891 and 1906, four successive presidents set aside more than 94 million acres of land. Dang. Now, all of this was land out west and that the federal government had still owned, but there wasn't any mechanism for land to be purchased back from willing private landowners back east so most land that uh, was closer to the atlantic was already either in state or private hands or individual hands now the weeks act of 1911 actually gave the government the ability to buy forested land back from willing private landowners as necessary to protect navigable streams so this was an act that really established cooperation between the states and the federal government to some level on like how to acquire land and really what the purpose of this was um, and so the point mentioning you could buy forested land from people that were willing, and then it was also to protect navigable streams and waterways. So that's kind of a big thing there that limited them though to a pretty like restricted area of like what they're able to get. And so following the the Weeks Act, uh, 1924, there's the Clark McNary Act that allowed them to buy. Any land that was, quote, forested, cut over, or denuded land within the watersheds of navigable streams as may be necessary to the regulation of the flow of the navigable streams or the production of timber. So by this point, the Forest Service actually had the ability to buy land from a willing seller with the purpose of protecting waterways and timber production. So that's where the national forests, like today, really serve a lot of different goals. So if you look at national parks, they're mainly recreation and conservation. People go out there to have fun. They go out there to look at the animals. National Forest, they do recreation, they do some conservation, but they also help kind of manage to start the nation's timber supply and ranching and these other activities. So it really is kind of like this big multi-use land management project that they've been doing. So the Forest Service buys land in a very specific way. They will send agents out to find land that meets their criteria so once they find land, it will get organized into a purchasing unit, and then the agents would negotiate a purchase price, and they're trying to get as much like contiguous land together as possible, and then those units would eventually get combined to make a forest. So after they get this proposed unit together with as much okay. land that's like all touching each other that they can, the Secretary of Agriculture submits the proposed land purchase to the National Forest Reservation Commission. Now, an important part of this is the states have to essentially sign off saying, hey, this is okay. Um, And the way they do that is through either an Enabling Act or a Consent Act. And after that gets passed, then the sale can go through.
1: Okay, so that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so that way it just kind of – you've already got this established effort between the the feds and the the state government on – Working together to prevent forest fires, protect the environment, protect people living there. Um, everybody wins. Everyone works together. So you just don't have a bunch of people running around in an unorganized fashion. So we're going to talk about getting a national forest in Missouri. Okay. The earliest inkling of. So say you
1: want to start a national forest. Say you want to start where a national I, where forest. Where would I start? In 1924?
0: So the earliest inkling of getting a national forest in Missouri was actually in 1914. Okay. So it's 1914. I want to start a national forest. Tell me the process. Let's do it. Okay. So (laughs) Forest Service engineers recommended the purchase of two tracts of land uh, kind of in the St. Louis area, but an enabling act by the state legislature wasn't passed. So they wanted to buy it, but the state never Mm -hmm. formally said, hey, you can go ahead and do that. Um, This was made known in uh, the February 7th, 1922 edition of the St. Louis Star by the general manager of the St. Louis Tourist Bureau. This guy was a big fan of them because he really saw that there was a big tourism draw to having kind of these uh, national forests and other like recreation areas. Mm -hmm. Now, not a lot of people at the time uh, that were in charge of running the state were on board. And the reasons are kind of unclear. Um, Industry and logging operations were much more willing to work. Uh, with state-level like officials that they could have some more financial influence over. However, though, on June 8th of 1929, the legislature did finally pass an Enabling Act that would authorize the federal government to purchase private lands, but they also restricted the size of the land. They could get to no more than 25 acres per tract and no more than 2,000 acres per county. So that's that would be like me Pretty saying, tiny. yeah, so that would be like me saying, hey, yeah, you can buy, buy property but you can't buy more than 20 square feet in a neighborhood and you can't buy more than like right five acres per county so that's the kind of shit heel politicking i think we're right. all used to so I'm it's so uh it's like the it. more yeah the more i read this stuff it's like the more nothing's changed um so yeah legally they could say they passed an enabling act but practically the forest service couldn't do anything so that was june 8th of 1929 in october of 1929 another thing happened
1: whatever could it have been
0: the great depression of course (laughs) (laughs) the big sad
1: the big sad so a lot more people were probably if i could guess if i may a lot more people were probably willing to sell their land
0: man it's like you read the script (laughs) (laughs) so by the early 30s missouri was running out of wooden money and
1: so allow me to butt in here okay so (laughs) go for it my wife and i we just bought some land and we bought uh, we bought a house, just a little bit of land, 20 acres, and I wanted to. I'm a wood even though I'm a woodworker, I don't, and I'm not just an axe hungry, crazy man. I you know I love tree conservation, and so I was looking into setting up that 20 acres to be, perhaps like a conservation area or s- some kind of like, rehabilitation of trees. Yeah, and so I was looking onto it, and so I found a couple things. Number one, Missouri's tree growth rate far and above exceeds its tree cutting rate. That doesn't make doesn't make sense. We are right. growing, we are gr- we're growing and planting more trees than we're cutting down in Missouri. That's good, which that's, is exciting. So this a, is that's
0: a new thing for us. This is yes. So this
1: is all Missouri Department of Conservation. Good you job, MDC. Yes, I would I would love to be told I'm wrong, but I, I scoured that website, which by the way. We have a fantastic Department of Conservation. I am, yeah, seriously. I, am, I would love for those guys to come out and just tell me how I can make stuff. I, I enjoy those guys. Um, So, number one, that. Number two, Missouri used to be um, border-to-border shortleaf pine, especially in the southern.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: And that was the most common. That uh, was the only pine that grows in Missouri, and it was the most common tree in southern Missouri. And so, if you are in southern Missouri and you're listening to this, which you probably are because Nathan and I are going to send it to our buddies, um, everywhere that you see oak trees, just in your mind, replace that with shortleaf pines. So when we went through and cut clear cut all the shortleaf pines, old growth shortleaf pine, the oak trees can grow much faster, really quickly. That explains and so it. Okay. All the oak trees grew up like like that, so they popped up in the air. Well, shortleaf pine does not like to compete, and so it couldn't compete with the big oak leaves and they were like and they just gave up so yeah. you'll see all the short leaf pine you see now is a concert effort by the missouri department of conservation to plant more so you'll see it on the way from springfield the west plains you'll see like pine forests and stuff like that yeah that's just them making a concert effort to, to grow back beautiful and they grow really fast yeah um, it's, it's awesome um but in 1920 you're talking about 19 1920, 1920 was like the uh, is the official year so MDC, look at the website, this is what they say. That was the official year that it was like, Oh yeah, we've cut down all the all the shortly fines. Like there's no Ogre shortly fines anymore.
0: Yeah, there was a really big but very short logging boom. Yes. And in Missouri. Jump yeah, jumping ahead. We're like four lines away from hopping into it. Oh my gosh. We are. (laughs) Dude, I'm just I'm sorry. It's like, um, it's
1: so funny that, you know, as a a tree nerd, it was something like that. But the end of what I was going to say, the third thing is that we're going to try to make a pine forest in our land. I've got a little sack. That's awesome, man. So I've ordered a hundred trees. I'm going to see how much space it fills. I'm going to space them according to the MDC website. So it'll be a forest. And... Which shout out to the nursery, um, Georgia White nursery in Eminence, Missouri. It's oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cheap. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna get a hundred, we're gonna see how many that is. We may need to get another couple hundred, but I want my grandkids to experience what a pine forest is like. Yeah, man. I it's won't awesome. get to walk through it, but it'll be just a beauty. like if you've ever walked
0: through a pine forest, it's amazing. It's
1: so much different from a deciduous or not. There is
0: I've seen one tree that's not get cut down during the logging boom. Yeah, and it is—it was impossible to find. I thought yep. we were lost. Man, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, but, um, that sounds like
1: a typical Mister. Bo- does that was your dad. Did your yeah, dad take you out yeah, there? that course. sounds like very something your dad would take you
0: out <laughs> to do. Like I could see your dad being like, "Hey him.
1: Nathan, we're gonna go find a tree that didn't get cut down," and you're like, "All right." Like, well, eight hours so. Later
0: yeah we um we were told that by we were just out like hiking in the backbone and there was this guy that he knew that was just like in the woods so this guy in the woods was like oh yeah there's this old growth pine like over that way and then I didn't understand any of the directions but then we went out there and found it after
1: so for a while MDC keeps track and I can't remember what they call them champion trees maybe but they keep track of all the biggest... Trees in Missouri. Oh, wow. So the biggest cherries, the biggest walnuts, the biggest. And they don't give exact areas, right? Because poachers, and that's a real thing. Like tree poachers are a real thing. Like there are people that will go into the redwood forest and the sequoia forest and they will cut off the burls of trees. Because the burls are really, really valuable, so they will cut the burls off trees. It'll kill the tree, but Jeez, which is terrible. Man. But yeah, it's poaching. Right, tree poaching? That's crazy. Isn't Come on, yeah, do Why drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go do drugs. Or do something else. Gosh, dude. So anyway. Um, wow. Yeah. So oh. I know. I know we got off topic, but oh, thank but, God
0: we have tree cops. Yes, I know. Yeah. Too. I,
1: I saw, tree <laughs> cops, watch like there was a truck parked on a bank, like right next to my house, and they were like watching them because they were like fishing off of this bridge and it was totally yeah. not loud and but they were waiting for them to like cast their line and i was like get them like, <laughs> <laughs> which usually i'm not like that but like i'm you know i don't want i want to take care of this stuff like i said for my grandkids but i don't want to get us too far so, off topic yeah
0: but. um so yeah by the early 30s missouri was running out of wood money Getting government-bred started to sound way more appealing. Yes. So that Enabling Act, limiting the purchase, uh, in 1933, they expanded the amount of land they could get to 25,000 acres per county instead of 2,000 nice. acres. Nice. Okay. A year later, they bumped it up to 100,000 acres. So now we're talking about entire counties, yes. And then the year after that, they got rid of the limitation entirely. Yeah, because they're <laughs> so, like,
1: counties, they don't get bigger. It's
0: like, oh, no, we are so broke. Somebody yeah. please get this from us so the state of Missouri during the Great Depression um, wasn't good. Yeah, poor girl. Touched on it earlier. There was a really big lumber boom in the late 1800s that wrapped up kind of the early 20th century. The land cleared by timber companies was just devastated by habitat loss and erosion. Selective harvesting was not a concept back then. It was just get all of it. Yes. Agricultural overproduction combined with low prices already had the Ozarks in a general recession before the Great Depression hit. And then when the Great Depression hit rural America, business failures and farm foreclosures were very common. You had families losing their land and homes to banks and wholesale mortgage companies. Literacy was becoming a lot more common. And it was yeah so like i said missouri was quickly running out of timber money and people i could read yeah and i've got a picture here for you that i uh, pulled so i mean that's that makes me sad looking at it. that that's was back from, that was back from the 40s That was 1941 Mm-mm. which i mean i i can't even recognize it now looking at that but it just really bums me out I'm Glad to glad turned around yeah so where was that picture taken I'm not sure where that is. Okay. Like, I'll, I'll t- like it's in like the western half of the Mark Twain National Forest, but I, I don't know exactly where. Okay. Um, but it's in Mark Twain. It, it is in Mark Twain. Yeah. So the Forest Service was founded under the principle of doing the most good for the most people, and they now had the responsibility of providing economic recovery in addition to environmental recovery. In order for them to do this, the land needed to be bought from willing sellers. So the Forest Service, their strategy was they would try to acquire enough land into a unit that would be considered to be a viable national forest. So you would need at least half of that purchasing unit to be considered viable. And even though things were really bad, people around here are still very stubborn, very leery of, you know, any big outside organization coming in. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to blame them for that. There's plenty of reasons why There's you so shouldn't do reasons. that. Yeah. But – in order to lay to rest the idea that establishing the national forest was a federal land grab instead of a benevolent move, um, the Forest Service distributed this pamphlet to people living in the Ozarks, which I'm gonna read. Okay. The Ozarks of Missouri a generation ago were noted for their extensive stands of magnificent pine and hardwoods. Logging and lumbering were bustling industries and billions of feet of timber were cut with no thought of the future of the workers or such natural resources as timber, game, water, and soil. Under this system of unrestrained exploitation, the seemingly inexhaustible stands of pine were the first to go, to be followed soon by the hardwoods. The timber exhausted, the lumber companies moved to other regions, presumably for further exploitation, leaving the declining towns so typical of the Ozarks region and reminiscent of the ghost towns of mining regions of the west. The workers left stranded by this movement were forced to turn to the soil for livelihood, aided and abetted by land sharks and real estate promoters anxious to dispose of the now nearly valueless lands. The soil supported the people on a reasonable standard of living for a time, but unscientific methods of cropping and burning of the woods followed by torrential rains finally resulted in a complete loss of the shallow topsoil, mm-hmm. except for the small part of the region comprising the wider stream bottoms. This in conjunction with the common continued practice of frequent woods burning done with the misconception of improving pastures has resulted in vast areas with rather complete ground cover of loose rocks and a scattering of badly injured and defective trees Mm. remnants of the original virgin stands game has largely disappeared and once fine fishing streams are now filled with silt for long stretches and subject to periodic floods during this period of soil and timber loss and deterioration the people have gradually become more poverty stricken until large relief expenditures are necessary to prevent deaths by exposure and starvation Literacy is on the increase and in some sections is disturbingly common. So when was the last time you heard a government agency talk like that? My girl.
1: I keep calling Missouri my girl. I love
0: (laughs) I'm a huge fan of Missouri. I've got a
1: tattoo of it. And it's just it's sad to hear. And it's so true. I mean, dude, like go on a walk in any old field and it's so rocky. There's rock I mean, it's just overexploited. And I learned from Greg Judy that there's a particular plant that grows called Broom's Edge and it when that grows it means your ph is low and also when juniper or cedar grows it means there's low ph in the soil Hmm. and it means that um your soil's crap and that usually comes from just like you said exploiting 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 just trying to just drain the nutrients from the soil and not letting it recover and so that's what's on my land currently the land that i own 20 acres and so luckily there's been farmers two of them uh, joel saladin and greg judy like they talk about land rejuvenation yeah. yeah And they do wonderful things. All they're doing, it's nothing, no chemicals, no stuff. I mean, you can, but they just they put out cattle, they rotate them in a certain way. Mm. They put sheep out, they rotate them a certain way, and then they let their land rest. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to use rabbits. It's going to take a lot longer. We use rabbits and goats and sheep, um, but it's cool, man. It's going to be awesome. So coming back to it, you're right. Like it's still around. Like the land that we looked at today. You could tell it's an old homestead. You could tell that they were trying to do it. You could see where the old hayfields were, and you can see that they're totally depleted. You can see where they tried to do stuff, and the soil's just gone. It's not the end of the world. You can still fix it. You can still fix it. Now, the soil that's totally gone, the rocky soil, be a lot harder to fix, but stuff that's— It's going to take it's gonna take a while, but you, you can't rehab it. Yeah, you definitely can rehab it. And I think a lot of dudes our age, like millennials,
0: a lot of Sheila's, are going to do it like they're excited. So have you ever noticed how the Mark Twain, it seems like the land's just kind of scattered and it's always kind of yes. in these weird yes. places? Yes, yes. <laughs> so the Forest Service found many willing sellers, but... That Enabling Act in 1933 limited the total amount of land they could purchase in one county to 25,000 acres. So agents were forced to look for land where multiple counties came together so they could get the largest chunks yeah. of land possible while working within a very dumb limitation that they got rid of mm-hmm. two years later. So despite all that, you know, they found land that met the criteria. And on June sixteenth, nineteen 1933, the regional office in Milwaukee recommended purchasing four tracts of land. In 1934, those boundaries were increased, and they also purchased two more tracts of land. And then in 1935, they had two more units that were purchased. So in the span of two years, over 3 million acres of land had been identified in 28 counties, and 982,000 acres of land had either been purchased or approved for purchase. So I'm just going to show you the picture now of what these original purchasing tracts were. So that's the top there. So there's four tracts that are kind of around. Over in Ava, huh? Yeah, yeah, and so like you can see too, though it's like they really were trying to work within that system. It's like okay, well if I can get like a corner or something, I can get a hundred thousand acres, even though it still meets the requirement. And then you know that's what it's at today. So I didn't realize there's a part of the Mark Twain that was way up by Jeff City. Yeah, but I never knew why it was so weird. Like yeah, yeah, because it all yeah because it always seemed like you cross right over into like another county, and then the forest is right there. Yeah, because most most national forests are yeah. Yeah, like it's they're not as patchwork together. Yeah. So we have over three million acres that had been identified for purchase at the end of 1935, but under a third of that had actually been bought or approved to be bought. Now, if you're broke and desperate and couldn't wait for money, you had another option. You could sell your property to somebody else for pennies on the dollar and get paid now. When things first started, it took up to two years to get those first transactions, but it may usually take about six months. So if you were really strapped for cash and you couldn't wait, which I can't blame you for doing this, um, you could sell it to somebody else. And the people that were engaged in buying acreage at rock-bottom prices were known as land jobbers. That's with an L, although somebody probably got some services thrown in there for selling their land at a discount. Yeah. So land jobbers were people that had the money and the time to sell land eligible for purchase by the feds at the agreed price. Few people were actually getting rich off of this since most people were making less than a dollar an acre. So they're buying land wholesale, flipping it around and then selling it to the feds for kind of the agreed price. Right. And so the most prolific land jobber of the time was a guy named LFP Curry, who sold uh, 6,701 acres of widely distributed land to the Forest Service, primarily during 1935. So after Missouri had this land, um, Missouri's national forests were actually a part of, like, the New Deal forests. From what I can tell, I think uh, there's, like, 14 total, and we had two of them. Yeah. Um, So in 1933, the Civilian Conservation Corps had 23 camps established on those original four purchase tracks. Uh, The camps housed 150 to 200 people, and between 1933 and 1942, more than 100,000 Missourians worked in the CCC. That's a lot of people. You know, our courthouse in West Plains is built by by one of those. I did not know that.
1: Yeah. So, <coughs> in 1929, when the dance hall exploded, uh huh. Okay, which is a whole different podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which we, dude, we should do that sometime. That I, a,
0: I, I've got a book under there. Don't worry. It's
1: So good. Um, it blew the the courthouse off its foundation. Huh. So they could only use certain rooms, and then they eventually demoed it. Well, this is right during then so it's not the it's not the wpa but it might have been the cc but they built it's Mm -hmm. built by them that's why it's concrete and looks bland because they were just throwing up buildings and and giving people work no like
0: beautiful architecture so fun fact okay yeah i didn't know that it's at the end of that book i think okay might be yeah 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 i'll need to look into that um so i guess in addition to doing that they planted over 43 million trees built 240 bridges created 1,600 miles of roads, and completed hundreds of erosion, recreation, and wildlife rehab projects. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot, man. Do you know
1: if their families could live in those camps?
0: I'm not really sure. I don't think they would have just because they've only got so much space and they really are paying people to do things, so I don't know if they were, like, raising families while
1: they were in there. I know conditions were probably miserable, but that does sound pretty awesome.
0: I mean, you're getting paid yeah. and a place to sleep, so that's better than the alternative. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the nice thing about it is they not only gave local people employment, but it also injected a lot of money into the local economy because you needed a lot of supplies and materials for carrying out these projects. During 1936, telephone wire, culverts, dynamite, and vehicle repair parts, work tools, deal for lookout towers, lumber, and hardware were all mostly supplied locally. You had 300,000 gallons of gasoline and 36,000 gallons of lubricating oil that were used that year. Ranger stations and district stations were also built by other work programs like the CWA and ERA. And some of those buildings are actually still standing today. Mm -hmm. We're we're getting to kind of the ridiculous part of the story here. Now, a lot of work was being done to restore Missouri's forests. So much that the Forest Service decided to actually split the eight units into two separate national forests. The four Western units were called the Gardner Purchase Units, while the four Eastern ones were designated as the Clark Purchase Units, and these were administered from Springfield and St. Louis, respectively. Deciding on each unit's name as a national forest began as early as 1935. It gets really stupid from this point, and there's a lot of people involved, yes. so I drew out a little diagram yes. for you to help keep everything straight, because to it to took tell. me three. I didn't have any other paper. <laughs> so the Gardner Purchase Unit was managed by James N. Deal. The okay. Clark Purchasing Unit was managed by Paul D. Kelliter. Their regional forester who's up in Milwaukee is Lyle Watts, and the forest chief in Washington, D.C. is John B. Hatcher. Okay. So in 1937, Chief Forester John Hatcher told regional forester Watts to consider petitioning the president to make the two units in Missouri a national forest. So then in turn, Watts told Deal and Kelleter to continue to submit appropriate names. Okay. So Kelleter, uh wrote back saying they should name the unit he is in charge of, the Clark National Forest. So who do you think that would be named after? Lewis. Of course, or Lewis's compadre. You think it's Clark of Lewis and Clark? Yes. No. It's <laughs> named after former Speaker of the House Champ Clark, of course. Of course, Champ Clark. I forget him. National monument of of the political (laughs) process. So what did he do, you ask? Well, he did some things. Most notably, he ended up killing a trade agreement with Canada by advocating for it. Wow. So England low-key supported the Confederacy during the Civil War, which if you look at the modern royal family, the queen married her third cousin, and the only person to leave the royal family married a black lady. So that's very on brand for them. (laughs) So we weren't very happy about that. After the war ended, we were trying to influence Canada and some other places in North America away from the British. Now, there were people in Canada that liked the trade agreement and thought it was a good idea, but there were also people that were very opposed to it, saying that we would try to annex them into the United States. So what did Champ Clark do, you might ask? Well, he got up onto the House floor and said, quote, I look forward to the time when the American flag will fly over every square foot of British North America up to the North Pole. There we quote. go.
1: baller move.
0: So either some guy in flannels with a little bat in his hand or a beaver heard it outside See, and, this and just radioed it back up to Canada. And they voted against the trade agreement. And we did not get a trade agreement finalized with Canada until over 75 years later in 1988. It's so bitter about that. So this the North <laughs> trade agreement i can't remember it, it, it wasn't nafta it was something it was like pre-NAFTA, pre-nafta but they're like no you shouldn't vote for it they're gonna try to take us over and then this guy gets it, it's like you should vote for it we're gonna take him over it's gonna be great and then taylor swift was born one year after we got right. a trade agreement with canada finally we should have just sent her up so clearly this was a guy that we needed to name a forest after amazing
1: i think what's cool about canada and america is that Americans don't want Canada and Canadians don't want America. Like we're just like we're cool with this really defined line between us. Yeah, now, for... I know nothing about politics, but that's what that's how I feel. I'm cool without Canada. And I think Canada's cool without us. Yeah, like I
0: every Canadian I've met, I've liked for the most part. yeah um, very pleasant people. I think it's fun to go up there, but if I had to live in Canada, I'd, I don't think I could do it. It's just oh. too cold, it's too dark. I don't know how they're so happy all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, good for you guys. Coulter Wall, Ryan Reynolds. I mean, just to name a few. Yeah. (laughs) Even though I don't understand your way of life, I support you for living that way. So. Kelleter and apparently everyone else was fine naming a forest after Champ Clark. But Kelleter, who, mind you, submitted a name for the place he managed, also suggested names for the other national forest while he was at it. And I'm not going to read those to you because they're kind of boring. Uh, Deal, who's the guy who actually runs the gardener Purchasing Unit, also sent in some name suggestions. So he suggested Shepherd of the Hills, which is a good one. Daniel Boone. I like that one. Mm
1: -hmm. Hey, that's my seventh, seven times great. So say great seven times. Uncle. There you go. Yeah. No, kid you not. (laughs) His, His sister was my great times six grandma.
0: Cool. Now you know. So I think he would have been a good one. Um, Linnaeus. L-I-N-N-A-E-U-S. Not a big fan of that one. Kickapoo. Okay. Mark Twain. Nice. Made an appearance. Chickamauga.
1: Say it fast. Nobody knows you're wrong.
0: Osage. Pulaski. Glades. Ridgetop. Mozart, which was his personal favorite. I like that one. And my personal favorite is Hillbilly. Like Hill space Billy. Yeah. So then later, Deal sent in Captain Meriwether Lewis, which I think is a good choice, and Thomas Hard Benton, who I think is also a pretty good choice. That would have been quite clever, Meriwether Lewis. And Champ Clark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would totally be a thing we would do. Kelleter wrote in again, suggesting more names. Uh, this time, he also included Mark Twain, so both guys have now... Agreed on one. ...thrown Mark Twain into the fray. And is it the only one they agreed on? You know, I think they're... I don't think so. I think there were a couple they both suggested, but they were honestly just kind of boring. I didn't know who they were, so I didn't bring them up. Now, um, so Kelder suggested more names. Deal wasn't out of ideas yet, though. So on November 30th, 1937, he sent out a series of form letters to members of the public, academia, and state and local government officials for his next big name idea. He wanted to name his forest after General John J. Pershing. Okay. So why did he bother sending letters out to the public and everybody else well it's because it was against the naming policies at the time forests were supposed to be named only for inanimate objects geographical or historical figures and by outstanding citizens who had died so that's why you don't see a lot of national forests named after people who are still alive and general pershing at this time was still very much alive however though most people that he wrote to were very receptive of this idea except for one associate professor from the university of missouri who I hate so much now to this point. (laughs) His name is Conrad Hammer. Why did he not like naming the forest after General Pershing? His reason, he wasn't dead yet. There was already a park in Lynn County named after General Pershing. And there was, quote, little on the name that would have attractiveness from the recreational or geographic viewpoints.
1: He never had to defend any kind of dissertation, I'm assuming.
0: No, probably not. I mean, (laughs) do you know how many streets there are named after that guy? We would have figured it out. Okay. No one would confuse a national forest with a park in Lynn County for crying out loud. So not only was his reasoning very stupid, but he gave his own list of possible names. Oh, yes here we go the opinion asked for niangua
1: nice niangua
0: tom no niangua not niangua niangua spelled
1: differently okay sorry
0: niangua they doesn't have a meaning it. It, it just it may be like a bastardization of niangua thomas l ruby neo show george c bingham william henry hatch Richard P. Bland. You're going to name something the Bland National Forest? Get out of here. No. (laughs) Lebanon. Henry R. Schoolcraft. Not a bad one. Okay. Thomas Hart Benton. Already been suggested. Doesn't get any credit for that. George Graham Vest. Whatever. Huntington. Also does not give you anything that would mention the attractiveness from the recreational or geographic viewpoints. It's just like animals live here. National Forest. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Redbud So his favorite choice uh, Niangwa had quote Euphony, whatever that is (laughs) So let me tell you A little bit about General Pershing He was the only person Who has ever been promoted to the highest Possible rank in the army while he was alive Only two people have Ever been awarded General of the Armies Of the United States One was General Pershing Do you want to guess who the second one was? Was it Dwight D? George Washington, 57 years after Pershing was awarded it, if anybody deserved to have a national force named after him while he was alive, it was General Pershing for crying out loud. Conrad, you suck. I think if I'm ever going to run into some of your family, I will just instinctively start throwing punches, and I am so sorry, (laughs) but it is a visceral reaction at this point. I hate this guy. Not
1: only do I hate your idea, here's my list of unasked for names.
0: Yeah. So he was so pissy about naming after <laughs> naming a forest after a guy that was alive. And then he suggested that the sound of clearing your throat was a good name. I, I do not like this man at <clears throat> all. <laughs> yeah. well, Anyways, while that's all happening, Chief Forester John B. Hatcher, who's the guy in D.C., wrote to the regional forester that Pershing and Mark Twain were good names because this guy had some sense. The regional forester in Milwaukee preferred Clark over Mark Twain, but there was a candidate running for office in Missouri with that last name, and the Forest Service did not want to look like they were backing a political contender. Okay. So, D.C. guy says, hey, Pershing and Mark Twain are good. Milwaukee says no we like Clark and he responded by saying that they also like Pershing but Mark Twain was also a good option and they really wanted to keep Clark and to distance themselves from any political candidate he proposed Champ Clark as the name of the forest so it went from Clark National Forest to Champ Clark National Forest and for some reason everyone was fine naming a forest after Champ Clark and not Pershing so the other unit's name was still up in the air and it was suggested that a name based on recognizable and widely known natural features be proposed. So Watts was pissed about this. He fired off two letters to DC that I'm gonna read uh, part of to you. Okay, quote, we're all in agreement that the name Pershing National Forest is by all odds the best name that could be selected. However, that name seems to be not acceptable to your office, so therefore we suggest that the name Gardner be established. If this is not satisfactory, a poor third choice would be the Gasconade National Forest. As you know, the Gasconade River touches only one of the four purchase units and therefore does not apply too well to the other units. It does, however, seem to be about the only hydrographic feature at all suitable for this purpose. So then the next day, he sends another letter that says, My attention has been called to the dictionary definition of the word Gasconade, which means extravagant boasting. And I am sure that the definition would cause one to hesitate in selecting that name for a national forest. And then he went on to suggest Mozarks as a name, as in Missouri Ozarks. So this guy is so petty. He's like, I'm trying so hard to give you names everyone likes. You know what? Screw it. We're just going to call it Gardner. Right. I give up. I have no idea. who. I I
1: love that he just he he trashes Champ Clark. I love that He's like, no way in hell. Like,
0: like that. I'm this is the hill I stand on. So, no, like everyone's fine with Champ Clark. It's the Pershing National Forest that they're trying to name. Well I know, but light. but why so, didn't
1: Lyle say I'm fine with Oh, was he talking about So yeah, this is
0: Watts. So Watts is the guy who's in- Right, right. Who's in the who's there, Milwaukee so- Regional Office? So yeah, like I said, very confusing, very petty. Dude, this why? guy is just-, it's just
1: months and years of just dude why. Like Yeah,
0: exactly. On September eleventh, nineteen thirty nine, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed proclamations establishing the Clark and the mark twain national forests and regional forester watts was not notified of this until four days later (laughs) it was great
1: like and he resigned the next day no i'm just kidding (laughs) i'm just saying like i'd be like are you joking
0: after all that dude i just think it's crazy though because like they're doing all these amazing things yeah and at the same time they're still being so petty and just like trashing each other in these letters it's like how were you helping at all because the way you're acting in these letters i feel like we'd still be planting trees (laughs) turns
1: out we've been hiding behind a keyboard for our whole (laughs) lives. all of human history (laughs) we just
0: do it a different way yeah man now if you look out your window today you're gonna see we only have the mark twain national forest so what happened to the clark one um you know so long story short we had you know these two national forests, and there was just kind of like some administrative reshuffling, flip flopping. You would have different districts kind of become under control of like the Mark Twain National Forest, which was being managed out of Springfield, and then the Clark one was being managed out of St. Louis for a time. And then they both came together in Rolla for a little bit and they split back apart. And then you had um, like the parts of the Clark National Forest being administered from like an Illinois office. So then eventually, on February 17th, 1976, the Clark and Mark Twain National Forest were combined into a single management unit as the Clark Twain National Forest. So I want to propose to you if oh, Mark Twain. as the Mark Twain National oh, okay. Forest. <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry, sorry about that. Um, to the U.S. Forest Service, if you are listening, I would like to propose a couple forest names. And I'm going to give uh, Puzo here the opportunity to as well. General Pershing is dead. Mm-hmm. I think you owe it to him to give him a national forest for crying out loud.
1: So back to our original question: say you want to start, say you want to start a national park. We've got some land. General Pershing, I'm down. All right, now we're
0: na- now we're name brainstorming. So I think Pershing is a good one. Okay. Um, if you're gonna go with those original tracks near St. Louis, I think you're gonna have to go with Lindbergh. Okay. Like Charles Lindbergh, Spirit of St. Louis, yep. flew a plane over the Atlantic. I think yep, that'd be absolutely. a good one um you know i'm i'm good with like kickapoo or like osage as well yep, i am too um you know when brad pitt dies i think he could probably get something <laughs> after him. brad pitt
1: john goodman
0: yeah yeah i i think brad pitt needs to have like a, a deep deep like hole it's like oh this is the brad pitt national forest and yeah. it's just like a big sinkhole <laughs>
1: yes exactly trying to think
0: of some good ones yeah like truman you shouldn't get stuff named after you truman has a library
1: there's a guy and i can't remember his name but he was like an olympian and he ran he's still alive but he runs all over springfield oh he does i'm trying to remember it he's, yeah he's an older guy
0: yeah if you want a gold medal you can have a national forest named exactly. after you i think that's a good one anyways we came up with what four names in the span of like 40 seconds, then it got awkward, and we just rolled with it. Yeah, that's right. So, like, just it's not that hard. So, that's the story of how we got the Mark Twain National Forest. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. It, it's it's very Missouri. It's so Missouri. hey, we're trying to help. No, and then oh, hey guys, by the way, you can like totally help so us much now. Red tape. And then if like
1: those four dudes had spent, I'm just saying, a week, yeah, like right, they'd spent a week getting together. And being like, we're going to solve this problem. Like, at the end, like I, I say a week. That includes travel time. We yeah. meet, meet together, like, on a <laughs> we're Wednesday. Just, we're just
0: all going to meet in St. Louis and figure it out.
1: Yeah, on, on Wednesday, we're going to train St. Louis. We're going to get there. And by the end of the day, the, at 5 o'clock, we're saying, and if no one picks anything, we're going with Pershing. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do. And they could have done that.
0: Yeah, little naming convention. Everyone just, little naming convention. And just throw a pot of coffee on. Y'all are probably smoking like trains anyways, so just put right. the nicotine and coffee get just pipes, fuel you. Get the pipes out, <laughs> get the cigars, whatever. Put on some cool music. So, yeah, that's uh, you know how we got the forest. If you like that episode, please give us a five star rating and review. Really helps us <laughs> out. Like and subscribe. Smash that notification button. Yes. Um, I don't think we have one of those. Anyways, doing all of that really helps the show. Tell your friends, please. Pizza. where can people find you? Yeah. You can
1: find me, Joseph, so J-O-S-E-P-H, at olivebranchfurniture.com. I did have a website. I wasn't having a – like most of my clients were coming just word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And so it was just – it was a lot of upkeep, so I kind of just took it down. I still own the domain. But um, you can just email me there as far as furniture goes. Okay. Um, Also business advice. That's it. Uh, My wife and I were – yeah, we're doing a whole bunch of stuff, so I'm excited about this cool, stage man. of life.
0: Yeah, so. I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing what you make. Yeah. So, you can find us on uh, Instagram at troutrapper and you can also go to troutrapper.com for all your clothing needs for your next poorly planned adventure. So, until next yes. time, do good, and get in the woods.